As you are sitting, if you would please turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Again, Proverbs chapter 11. We're in Proverbs a couple more weeks. Blake is over at Anderson covering for me, and um, he got me here at Southwood this morning. Uh, some of you may know that uh, Blake and I took a sabbatical earlier this summer, and we, uh, we took a trip together. Chris McGuffey joined us, and we went to Turkey. And recently I've been asked uh, several times, why in the world would you go to Turkey? I, I don't know if you've been following the news at all, but... Um, Kurdish terrorists just uh, set off a few bombs in, in Turkey, and it's a very complicated, convoluted situation over there because the Kurds are actually helping the coalition fight against ISIS, and Turkey's also fighting against ISIS, but the Kurds are, have been in rebellion against the Turkish government for years, trying to get their own independent nations. It's a really complicated, convoluted thing, and obviously Turkey shares a border with Syria, and there are all kinds of Syrian refugees flooding over, so why Turkey? And all I can say is it was fun. That's great. Uh, actually, no, there, there's biblical significance to Turkey, right? First century, Turkey was the Roman province of Asia. And as you read the New Testament epistles, you'll discover that many of them, most of them, were written either to churches in Turkey or in Greece. We're going to study the book of Acts in the fall. Second half of the book of Acts, Paul is on his missionary journeys, and he is going through Turkey and Greece. He eventually makes it to Rome, But the book of Acts is about Turkey and Greece. The book of Revelation, seven churches that John wrote to are all in Turkey. So there's enormous biblical significance and a lot of learning for us. And I love love to learn. I love to to see new things and be stretched. And so I thought I'd give you kind of a a, a little brief visual highlight. Blake and I will be drawing in more pictures and images and stuff that we learned while we were there. But I thought I'd give you just a few highlights this morning. Uh, One of the things that I was really impressed with was the site of Pergamum. On the top of the Acropolis, there is a beautiful temple to the Emperor Trajan. And uh, our own Blake Jennings pretended to be Trajan <laughs> there on the Acropolis at Trajan's temple. He's not an emperor, but that's okay. Laodicea was another really remarkable site. Incredible excavations and restorations have been going on there over the past several years. And one of the best parts was we were basically the only tourists there at that site at that point in time. So this is the main street that goes, uh, cuts through Laodicea. And to give you a sense of what they've done in the past few years, this is the same street just a few years earlier. And so this is what it looks like now, uh, and this is what it looked like just a few years ago. Ephesus was the most impressive site, uh, really well excavated. As we were driving into the city of Ephesus, we looked off on our right, and you can see uh, Roman aqueducts, which let me just say, Roman engineers would do fine at Texas A&M College of Engineering. I mean, these, these men were geniuses in their engineering feats. Uh, this is the main city, uh, city street that goes into the city of Ephesus. At Ephesus, we were not the only tourists there. This, this place is really crowded, and we were told actually it gets a lot more crowded as the summer goes on. A couple highlights. There were beautiful mosaics there, and my favorite mosaic, mosaic of a duck. No spiritual significance, but I just thought it was pretty. Um, <laughs> And then the public bathhouse, extensive bathhouse, and this is the section of the bathhouse that housed the toilets. There's another fun picture for you (laughs) this morning. Okay, here's the gang. Uh, Me and Blake and and Chris McGuffey standing in front of uh, what is one of the largest theaters in the Roman world at the time. Seats uh, more than 10,000 people. So think Reed Arena. Enormous, really impressive. So what did we see? Well, what we saw throughout... Turkey was ruins. We saw piles of rocks that used to be something. 
but now are just piles of rocks, some of them reconstructed and stacked back on top of one another a bit. But basically we saw ruins, and I confess that I, I like looking at ruins. I like looking at old rocks and stuff, so there's a lot to learn. But uh, these ruins, sadly, are a metaphor for the church in Turkey. Where once there was a vibrant, growing church, now the church is in ruins. To put this in perspective, Turkey is a country of 73 million people. There are 163,000 Christians in the country of Turkey. That's 0.22%. And of those Christians, there are 7,000 Christians that think like we do and worship like we do. That's 0.01%. Remember, Asia Minor is where the church was first planted and grew and expanded and began sending missionaries to other nations. And now uh, the church is gone. It's largely gone. A couple of visual illustrations. This is the Church of Holy Wisdom, or Hagia Sophia. It's a beautiful building. It's built uh, 570 A.D., I believe. It became uh, a Muslim mosque in the 1400s. And now it's a museum. An incredibly beautiful structure that was built for the worship of Jesus Christ. And now it's just a museum. It's a museum of what used to be, but is no longer. Now Turkey is a country of Muslims and materialists. It's 99% Muslim, but a large percentage of those folks don't stop when the call to prayer goes out. They don't stop. They don't get down on their knees. They don't face Mecca. They don't worship. Many of them are just very, very materialistic. Another really good illustration of this visually, I clicked this as I was walking by these two ladies. I just kind of popped a a quick photo. It's a little dark, a little bit difficult to see, but uh, both of them are uh, fully veiled. All that you can see are their eyes, but the lady on the left is texting on her iPhone. Right? All you can see are her eyes, but she can see the whole world through that phone. And so you discover this really weird mix of Islam and a culture being pulled into materialism. But what you don't find is the worship of Jesus Christ. So what happened? Well, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, and he said this, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Revelation is a book with just crazy imagery that's difficult to understand, but then there are other images that are explained very directly. The lampstand is the church. The lampstand is the life and vitality of the church. And Jesus says, unless you return to me, to your first love, you're so distracted by many things, your church will disappear. The lampstand will be removed. The light will go out. And in fact, that's what happened in church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Sardis and throughout Asia Minor. What happened exactly? We don't know. We we don't know historically. But church, I think this serves as a great warning to us as a church, but also individually, that Satan wants to extinguish the lampstand of our lives. And we now live in a very vibrant Christian community, and your spiritual life may just be exploding right now, but let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
There are many cultures and nations and churches that once were vibrant and growing where now the church is no more. Uh, Some of my relatives came and visited us from Sweden uh, earlier this summer. They stayed for a couple weeks. And uh, Sweden used to be an incredible sending nation. Anywhere you went in the world 100 years ago, you'd find Swedish missionaries. Now the churches are used for concerts. The church has collapsed. We live in this incredible sending community. Whenever I travel outside of of College Station, I I argue that Texas A&M is the most spiritually receptive campus in the world. It probably has the largest college Christian community, including any Bible colleges, anywhere in the world. Think about it. I mean, at Breakaway, Tuesday nights, upwards of 10,000 students gather every week to worship and listen to the Word. That's crazy. And here, it's just here in little Bryan College Station, Texas, right? I visit churches, and they have no missionaries that come from their church to be sent out to the world. We have more people who want to go to the world than we can possibly support. Church, let's be humble. Let's step back and say, God, guard us and protect us. Let's not be presumptuous. Why did the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and throughout Asia Minor fail? We don't know specifically, but let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Right? The downfall of the church is presumption, it's pride. We're going to talk about pride this morning and humility. Pride and humility is an enormously significant topic in the book of Proverbs, and it is an enormously significant topic for our lives. So I'd like you to dive in with me. Proverbs chapter 11, and let's read verse 2. Solomon wrote, When pride comes... Then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Uh, Humility is not an easy idea to sell. Our very own Matt Morton drafted a book on the topic of humility a couple years ago, and he shopped it around to several several publishers, and they said, we can't sell a book on humility. If you kind of want to reframe that in terms of self-help, personal development, maybe leadership and influence on others, then we, maybe we can market that for you. But humility, you know, we, we don't sell books on humility. Interestingly, though, a generation ago, Andrew Murray wrote a book by the title of Humility, and it was a bestseller. So we're going to go back a century to Andrew Murray. And I'm going to quote to you several times from Andrew Murray's wonderful book, which I highly recommend that you read because you need it. Okay, Andrew Murray on humility. He said, The root of all virtue and grace, of all faith and acceptable worship, is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive. And we bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. Hey, listen to that again. The root of all virtue and grace... So the source of God's power to transform our lives, the root of all faith and worship that is acceptable, worship that God really welcomes, that pleases him, is this, that we know that we have nothing but what we receive. And as a result, we bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. Humility is an enormously significant topic. So why is pride such a problem? Again, from Murray. So there's nothing so natural to us. There's nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight. Nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Pride 
is in all of us. Pride has infected absolutely every single one of us. He says there's nothing so natural to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Pride is not second nature. Pride is first nature, right? Pride is first nature. And he says it's, it's insidious, it's hidden, it's so slippery, right? Just when you think you're growing a little bit in humility, you say to yourself, yes, I'm becoming so much more humble. I want to be known as a humble person. Ah, uh, man, back to square one. Why? Because pride entered into human experience right from the very beginning. Remember, why did Satan fall? The issue is pride. Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a description of the the fall of the king of Tyre. And many commentators think that it really is a parallel of the fall of Satan. King of Tyre exalted himself just as Satan had exalted himself. Satan, whose title means adversary, was originally named Lucifer, and he was the most beautiful of all of God's creatures. He was the most intelligent and the most powerful, but he wasn't satisfied with being the greatest of God's creatures. He wanted to be God. And as a result, he fell. His pride led to his fall. And so when God created the earth and he made all of the beauty of the earth and he crowned that creation with Male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve, Satan decided that he wanted to infect and destroy all the good that God had created because he wanted to be in control. And he came and he tempted Eve the same way that he had been tempted. He said, Eve, it's not enough that you are the most beautiful of God's creatures. God's withholding something from you. He's withholding it because he knows that in the day that you grasp that thing for yourself, you will be just like God. Take it take it, which is really the essence of pride, lifting self up and bringing God down. In fact, if you look at both the Hebrew and the Greek, literally pride means to lift up or exalt, to swell, to roar, to boast. That is pride. So where does it come from? What's the source? Let me give you a few thoughts. Sometimes Pride comes from simple foolishness. We're just ignorant. We, just, we simply don't live in truth and reality. Psalm chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool said there is no God. And if there is no God, then I can be God. I can be my own God. That is pride. Bringing God down from his place that he alone can occupy and lifting self up. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Sometimes the source of pride is anger. Proud people are angry people, and angry people are, are proud people. Proverbs 13, verse 10, it says, Through insolence, through pride, through arrogance comes nothing but strife. Angry people stir things up. Why? Because they think they deserve something or are owed something that they do not have. And so they're angry at God, they're angry at family, they're angry at friends. They deserve to be treated a certain way. When they're not, they're angry. They don't have what they want. People around them are a barrier to get what they want, so they go after it and they trample people as a result. Proud people stir up anger. They stir up conflict. Paradoxically, sometimes pride comes from fear and insecurity. In fact, the flip side of the coin of fear is actually insecurity and pride and anger. All these things are, are interrelated with one another. Fearful people are often actually 
proud people. People who appear insecure are often actually very proud. But their fear comes in because they wonder, am I adequate for the task? Am I smart enough or strong enough? Am I pretty enough? Do I have what it takes? I don't know if I have what it takes. And so I better convince myself and those around me that I have what it takes. A man named Alan Richardson wrote a great commentary on Genesis. And in the section on the Tower of Babel, where the people were exalting themselves up into the throne room of God and trying to bring God down, he makes this comment. It says, The hatred of anonymity drives men to give the honor and the glory to themselves which properly belong to the name of God. You notice that first phrase. It says, The hatred of anonymity drives men. What if this is all that exists? Well, then I better make a lot of noise going through. And so proud people are boasting and bragging and exalting self because they're fearful. And the fear often looks like anger. but Sometimes it looks like insecurity. All these things are sources of our pride, no matter what. What are the symptoms? How do we know when pride has infected our own lives? Okay, and here I'll, I'll get a little bit uh, personal for all of us, I'm sure. When we are not teachable, we're proud. Unteachable people are prideful people. People who are teachable are humble. Can you learn from anyone? Is anyone around you have something to contribute to your life so that you can learn? If you find yourself being unteachable, you, you, you can't learn, you can't listen to instruction and advice, that's a sign of pride. Proverbs chapter 10 says, He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Man, you are on the right path and you are on the path of life when you can listen and learn and grow. When we are always in conflict... Does conflict follow you, or are you one who makes peace? Does conflict die down in your midst, or is conflict stirred up in your midst? Proverbs 28, verse 25, an arrogant man stirs up strife. He finds the conflict, or he makes the conflict. When we are not praising, but we are boasting, are you your favorite topic of conversation? (laughs) I guarantee you, if you don't know, others around you do know, if that's your favorite topic. When we're not lifting God up and lifting others up around us, but we're lifting self up, it's a symptom of pride. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. What is the name that people give you when you are not standing there? When we are easily offended... Are you a super sensitive person? People dance around you because it's always like walking on eggshells. You know, you might tell yourself that's a sign of insecurity. It's actually a sign of pride. It's a sign that you believe that you're deserving to be treated a certain way. And when people don't treat you a certain way, you are offended. You're always offended, always offended. We'll move on. That's really convicting. Okay, when we forget to pray, not prayer, when we forget to pray... We forget to pray. We just dive into our days because we got it. Got it under control. Whatever the day throws at me, I can handle. That's simply pride. And I will tell you, I see this one in my life all the time. I I literally have a note taped onto my computer screen that says, pray first. 
Because I'll flip on the computer, I'll pick up the phone, I'll walk down the hall, I'll get busy, busy, busy. I'll think and I'll plan before I pray. And that's just pride. And you know what? No matter what the source, no matter what symptoms are showing up in your life, the result is still the same. The result is it's called an abomination in Proverbs. It's false worship. You're lifting up self and bringing down God. And God can't have that because it's not good for you. It's not healthy. So God's going to work to chip away at your pride because someday there will be this great reversal of fortunes where proud people are brought low and humble people are exalted. Ezekiel chapter 17. The Lord speaks and he says, All the trees of the field will know that I'm the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree. I dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I've spoken. It's going to happen. He uses trees as a metaphor, right? He says, the tree that exalts itself above every other tree, well, that tree's going to come down. And the tree that's green because it's grabbing and taking every resource around it, well, I'm going to dry that one up. But the one that is thirsty for me and for righteousness, well, that one I will lift up. It will be green and it will flourish. Or as Jesus says very simply, He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Which is what I like to describe as the prize of humility. It's exaltation from God in the right way at the right time. Peter puts it like this. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. In the right way and at the right moment, being lifted up and exalted by God, that is the prize of of humility, the reward from God. So what does it mean to be humble? Again, literally, to crouch, to bow down, to be low. If pride is literally something that's lifted up, humility is literally something that is laid low. Humility is not thinking negative thoughts about yourself. Humility is actually thinking truthfully about God and your relationship to God. That's humility. Humility is thinking truthfully. Read with me again chapter 11, Proverbs and verse 2. It says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. And if you read the book of Proverbs, what you'll notice is humility and wisdom, wisdom and humility are equated with one another. Humility is wisdom. Solomon will write, Humility is wisdom because humility is seeing life truthfully and accurately. That's why God wants to drive us to humility because it's true. Right? It's the right way to think of God and self. Again, from Andrew Murray, he says, Humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as human beings and yielding to God his place. God, you're here, and we are here. That's just true. Right? And if you live with this orientation, you live well, you live wisely. Humility is wisdom, and wisdom is humility. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Actually, Job. Let's go first to Job. Job chapter 42 and verse 5. Job 42 and verse 5. You remember Job's life, he, he suffered extensively and he got very frustrated with God and he made all kinds of proclamations, uh, mostly true, some not so true. But he basically called God into court. God, you need to answer to me. Right? And at the very end of the book, God comes and says, really, Job? Really? I need to answer to you? Let's talk about that a little bit. 
Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? In fact, can you go down to the depths of the earth? Or what about the heavens? Can you reach out and, and touch them and be there? Do you understand them? Could you, could you put a lasso on Leviathan, you know, the, the, the hippopotamus? Could you just, no, he'd crush you, Job. And Job goes, okay, okay. And then God goes, I'm not done yet, right? And then he just keeps going on. It's kind of like a parent taking a child to task. We just kind of keep going. Right? And we just keep going. And God just goes and he goes and he goes. And the lecture just never seems to end. And finally, Job goes, okay, Lord, I, I get it. I get it. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job repeats the question God had asked to him. And the answer is Job. Job's the one who's doing lots of talking, but not understanding anything. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you, God, and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. God, you are God, and I am man. And when we see God for who he is, then we see ourselves properly in relationship to God. Turn to Psalm chapter 138 and verse 4. Psalm 138 verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the proud, the insolent, he knows from a great distance. You see what David is saying? He's saying, all the kings, all the greatest people of the earth, they will someday acknowledge that you are God and they are not. And then those who have humbled themselves, who are low, God, you will draw near to them. You will know them with intimacy. But those who are proud, you know from a distance. In other words, do you want a deep and intimate relationship with God? Then you better learn humility. The proud he knows from a distance, but the humble he regards. He draws near to the lowly and the humble of spirit. Those are the ones who are intimate with God. In other words, when we see God as he is, then we see ourselves as we are in relationship to God, and we recognize, sure, yes, we are lowly. We're broken, fallen creatures, but we are deeply loved and valuable to God. Right? So, so yes, we are low in relationship to the infinite creator of the universe, but we are made in his image. And in fact, he will one day restore that image completely and we will rule and reign with his son Jesus Christ over all of the earth. He will exalt at the proper time. Yes, we're low, but we're deeply loved and very, very valuable. And when we see ourselves as we are, truthfully and accurately, then we can begin to see others around us, truthfully and accurately. And we won't be so angry at them because they are blocking the goals that we have in life. But instead, we will see that we're all broken creatures in need of the grace of God. And we're all humble and low before the cross. Jesus told a great parable about this in Luke chapter 18. And Luke tells us that the reason he told the parable was to expose those who were self-righteous and regarded other people around them with contempt. In other words, they lifted up themselves and they looked down upon others. That's why Jesus told this parable. He, says, he said, a man went into the temple 
ostensibly to worship, but not really to worship God, but to worship himself, right? So he goes into the temple to worship, that is to exalt himself, and he looks up to the heavens and he says, oh God, how fortunate you are that I'm on your team, right? Because I fast and I pray and I tithe, and man, I am, I am the righteous of the righteous. It's awesome. And God, you're so fortunate that I am like I am, and I'm not like these people around me. For example, that sinner over there. Just then turned his attention. He said, now, look at the other man who was declared the sinner. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to the heavens. Instead, he just stood beating his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The lesson, Jesus said, is which man walked away justified or right in his relationship with God? The one who lowered himself before God. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 29. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will obtain honor. So how do we apply this? Well, the application is simple. Choose humility over pride. And that is actually a choice that you can make. Okay, we'll talk about how in just a minute. James chapter 4, verse 10 says this. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we're going to have a grammatical moment here. Humble yourselves. That's a verb. It's an imperative or a command. A command means there's something for you to obey. And God doesn't give commands that you can't obey. Commands that you can obey. So here's a command that you should obey and that you can obey. Humble yourself. It's a reflexive verb, which means it's something that you choose to do to yourself and for yourself. You can humble yourself. It is not thinking negatively about yourself and your personality and so forth, but choosing to put yourself in proper and right relationship to God and to others around you. Now, how do you do that practically? How do you do that? I would encourage you to do two things. First, start at the cross. Start at the cross. Andrew Murray wrote, humility is the one indispensable condition of a true relationship with Jesus. Catch that? Humility is the one indispensable condition of a true relationship with Jesus. Why? Because humble people go to the cross empty-handed. They say, God, I have absolutely nothing to bring that you need or you want. I am here to receive. I'm here to receive the gift of eternal life and the permanent removal of my debt of sin. Let me encourage you, if you have never come humbly before the cross of Christ and made that decision to believe in Jesus and accept eternal life from him, this morning that is the one decision you need to make. Humble yourself before God. Not coming and saying, oh God, you're so fortunate to have me on the team because as I look around myself at all my neighbors, well, I'm better than this guy, I'm better than that guy. Maybe not quite as good as this guy, but things average out and I'm in the top 50%. God, how fortunate you are. That's not how we come to God through Jesus Christ. We come humbly and we bow before him. We say, God, give me, I bring nothing. I'm I'm a debtor. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. So start at the cross. And if you've not started at the cross yet, please do so this morning. Then I would encourage you to stay at the cross. The cross illustrates God's substitution for our sin by placing it on Christ. It also serves as an example for us for how to live our lives. The cross is an example to how to live 
life and live it well. Imagine this. The eternally existent Son of God was born of a virgin. He, he became a baby, completely dependent upon his mother and father to feed him and clothe him and change him and carry him. How humbling was that? He lived the same life that we live. I would argue much harder in the first century than the life that we live. No air conditioner. No iPhones. No fast food. Sandals. That's all you got to wear. Or bare feet. I mean, it was just a rough, hard existence. And he lived our life so that he could die on our behalf. But he lived as an example. Imagine this. The creator of the universe, the one who flung the stars into existence, at his last meal with his disciples, he takes off his robe and puts on a robe that marks him as a servant, as a slave. And he gets down on his knees and he crawls around the room and he washes the dirt out from between the toes of 12 foolish, rebellious men, including Judas. Right? The creator of all of the universe, the creator of the dirt between the toes, scrubs the dirt out from between the toes. And when he stands up, he says, you know why I did that? So that you would go and do the same. Okay. I did that as an example for you to live like I live. As he said to his disciples, Mark chapter 10, Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If our Savior can serve like that, can't we? People treat us like servants. We need to say to ourselves, oh yes, we are servants of the great servant. We can live as servants. In other words, how do we humble ourselves? Well, by humbling ourselves. We get low and we exalt others around us. Jesus was not an insecure man. He wasn't a fearful man. He wasn't an angry man. He knew that God had commissioned that all of the universe would be under his care and command. He knew that he had come forth from the Father, that he was going back to the Father. He knew that he was God in human flesh. And as such, in humility, he got down on his knees, not insecure, but strong in his identity and relationship with the Father. And he served. Men and women, that's how we grow in humility. So as Tristan leads us in a final song, what I want you to do is I want you to think very specifically as you, as you meditate on these words and, and sing along with Tristan. Think, who specifically could you serve this week? How could you humble yourself by lifting someone else up around you? Who is that person and what has God called you to do so that you can grow in this quality of humility? Well, Tristan's going to lead us in, in worship and then I'll come and close this in prayer in just a moment. Would you bow with me? Maybe you made a decision for the first time to humble yourself before God and look to his son Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Let me encourage you, there's uh, some men and women who will be at the front after the service. If you want to come and uh, tell someone about that decision, maybe get some, some input on how to begin to grow in your relationship with God through Jesus, please come forward and let these folks talk with you and pray with you. Or maybe you just feel a conviction from God's spirit that there's some changes you need to make in your life uh, and you would like someone to pray with you, please come forward and, and pray. Father, we, we pray that you would break the pride in our hearts, teach us to walk in humility before you and before others. 
because it's true, it's right. Father, I thank you that you're relentless in your pursuit of transforming us into the very image of Jesus Christ. And we look forward, Father, to this, a new week to follow his example, to live like your son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Walk in humility this week.